who is God and who has time for that question? I'm coming to you this morning from my office where I have next to me these shelves full of books about God and faith and life. And on the other side, I have uh, these images, icons, and sayings that help ground me in my faith and my work. I'm coming to you on Trinity Sunday, this first Sunday after Pentecost, the first Sunday in what is called Ordinary Time the long season between Pentecost and Advent. Ordinary time. This feels like anything but ordinary time. A worldwide pandemic, streets filled up with the release of pent-up anger, the desperate cries of a son for his mother, political theater played out with tear gas and rubber bullets. This feels like anything but ordinary time. But maybe this is ordinary time. Maybe the pandemic is re reminding us that ordinarily our societal systems do not protect the most vulnerable. Maybe the protests in the streets are reminding us that ordinarily people of color do not receive equal treatment in this country. Maybe the violence is reminding us that ordinarily we do not take nonviolent requests for justice seriously. Maybe the televised killing of a black man by a police officer is reminding us that ordinarily violence is embedded in our systems and in our culture. Maybe our struggle to know what to say or do is reminding us that ordinarily we have stayed quiet instead of speaking against racism. Maybe this is ordinary time after all. Who is God and who has time for that question? Our scripture today is often called the Great Commission. Now, growing up with missionaries as my heroes, I knew this one by heart. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That making disciples part? I always read it as an agenda, a mandate, Jesus commanding us to go and tell everyone how it is. But can I be so bold as to say this text was too quickly taken by those of us who benefited from manifest destiny and its heritage to mean that we were the ones who had to tame the savage we were to form the world in our image of individualism and conquest. We were the self-styled experts in religion and culture. We have been too quick and too long and too arrogant in assuming we know exactly how the world should work. My friend Scott Garber in his book White as Sin says the sin of white people is the sin of haughtiness of being haughty, of thinking that we are better than. When I look again at the Great Commission this week, I see this text is not inviting us to convert or dominate. That is indeed a very relational invitation. Discipleship, making disciples, is about a way of life, not a religious affiliation or a correct set of beliefs. Discipleship means to model your way of life after Jesus, 
Jesus who humbled himself to the point of death. And to baptize in the name of the triune God, this is not colonial supremacy. Baptism in the name of the Trinity is to be marked by the divine reality of relationality. Who is God and who has time for that question? Today being Trinity Sunday, we are invited to look at that most foundational of Christian doctrines, the Trinity. God defined in seriously the weirdest way, three persons in one, three ways that God seems to show up that led the early church to try to pin it down into words. The best definition of the Trinity that I know is a circle dance. Three people holding hands, relying on each other, leading each other, and deferring to each other all at the same time. The God of Trinity knows no social distance. The God of the Trinity is always drawing near, leaning in, listening. This is the traditional Christian definition of God, that God's essence is relationality, the state or the condition of being relational. Physicists tell us this is also the nature of reality, that matter is not solid, but it's actually the space between particles. God is relationship. We are made of relationship. Martin Luther King acted from this understanding of God when he said, in a real sense, all of life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. This is the interrelated structure of reality. In a relational definition of reality, sin becomes not what we do wrong, but sin is a denial of relationship, acting against the very nature of God and the very nature of ourselves. And in a relational definition of reality, we can place our fear and our hurt and our anger in the same circle as compassion and forgiveness. It can all belong in a relationship. We're not locked into right or wrong winners and losers. We can bleed and bless, as Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III says. To observe all that Jesus commanded, as Matthew says, is to insist on this reality, to reform our lives and our communities around this reality to resist any lies of separation and dominance, to be about restoration, not retribution. This is why we must take time for the question, who is God? Who is God? Because the answers most of us have been given at the least have not been robust enough, and at their worst are dangerous. But when we worship a God who is compassion, forgiveness, and love, that is what we see and who we become. In 1968, the South African Council of Churches said it this way, The gospel of Jesus Christ declares that God is love. This is not an easy doctrine. It is not sentimental humanism. It is far easier to believe in a God who is less than love and who does not require a discipleship of love. But if God is love, separation is ultimately opposite the opposite force to God. But if God is love,
Separation is the ultimately opposite force to God. The will to separate is the most complete refusal of the truth. The life of separation is the most plain denial of life. Who is God? You may already believe in the relational God of the Trinity. You may be nodding your head in assent to everything I am saying. You may have read way more books than I have on this subject. What I am preaching today is not new, but this is a time of history to let ourselves believe it all over again and to live in a more profound way. In this time of crisis, we are being invited to revisit the way we live our lives and the structures that support our society. We cannot leave the work to be done by politicians and activists. Each of us must take the risk of love. Each of us must oppose separateness wherever we find it. Will we believe that God is big enough to hold all of us? Let me be so bold as to make some invitations. I invite you to listen. You can't learn to dance without watching and following. We must listen to the voices of people of color in our country and take in their anger and their grief and their experience. We must follow their lead. And I invite you then to dance, to begin to take some steps, confessing our complicity, conscious or not, risking hard conversations with those we love, learning what it means to be just not only not racist, but actually anti-racist instead. Pay attention to the consequences of, of how you spend your money and vote and speak. Take awkward step after awkward step and trust that God is holding you. Who is God? God is with us and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm starting to get it old enough to start to see that end of the age, to see that long game, to see that arc towards justice. This week, I witnessed people who could not understand the anger of African Americans 30 years ago in the streets of Los Angeles during the 1992 riots. I saw those same people express their support of the protests, ask forgiveness, and commit to listening. I read a statement this week about from a small town chief of police that condemned the killing of George Floyd and committed to community policing. Five years ago, that same police chief refused to speak out. And I see my own children outpacing my understanding of racism and challenging me to take another step. I see that God is with us and God won't leave us alone until the world becomes what we already are, a beloved community. Amen.